following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Our scripture reading is in Ezekiel again this morning. If you turn there to chapter 6, we saw the picture of the sword and the division of Ezekiel's hair representing the division of the people of Israel into those groups that would be judged in different ways. Continuing on with Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 6, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them, and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys, Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. Then your altars shall be desolate, your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. In all your dwelling places the cities shall be laid waste. And the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate. Your idols may be broken and made to cease. Your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave a remnant, so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations, when you are scattered through the countries." Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, because I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me, and by their eyes, which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. Thus says the Lord God, pound your fists and stamp your feet and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die by the pestilence. He who is near shall fall by the sword. And he who remains and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when their slain are among their idols all around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every thick oak, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their idols. So I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate, yes, more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla and all their dwelling places. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Indeed, that is... What happened and what shall happen? I had the wondrous privilege on Friday evening to be with family and questions came up about the situation overseas and how we should think about it and a number of other things in terms of the scriptures and uh, it just was a wonderful conversation I felt. One of the things that we shared around the around the table as we ate and enjoyed a little ice cream for someone's birthday was that the, uh, yes, it was a little, and then a little more, and then a little more after that. (laughs) 
Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's right. Little by little, inch by inch, <laughs> you get through that big bowl. Um, it was very nice. But uh, one of the things that we shared with the family was that in the midst of the world's problems, the gospel of Christ gives hope for more than only or simply individual salvation. You know that the good news of Jesus Christ includes that the king is coming back. The gospel of the kingdom is that he will rule over the earth and the earth will be filled with the glory of God and will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. All men will know him from the least until the greatest. They will not teach any man Every man his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know him. And his law will be implanted. It will be enforced. It will be ruled by his saints. And the whole world over will be ruled in righteousness, ultimately from his throne in Jerusalem. And so the gospel includes not only the problem or the solution to the problems that we talked about this morning with the wrath and enmity and bondage and guilt, and death due to sin, but it will solve those problems cosmically, universally, not just individually. The gospel is, is not just medicine for the individual. It is the solution for the whole world's difficulties. We have answers for all of those things that are going on today. We have expectations of solutions for those problems that will not be diplomatic, not be political. They will be Religious, they will be centered upon Jesus Christ. They are coming. He is coming, and we look forward to that. We have a hope, my friends. This lost world does not know, but it will be made to know and will be made to understand about the greatness of our God. It's, it's, it's going to be hard to, uh, it is hard to imagine how it will look, really, but it will look, it will be, and we look forward to participating in that in the time to come. It seems only getting closer and closer and closer as we move through the, the days. But our topic is not that this morning. It's actually the text in Titus chapter 3 now. If you would turn your Bibles there to Titus, find First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. If you get to Philemon and Hebrews, you've gone just a bit too far. Titus chapter 3, we've addressed the first two chapters. We've seen Titus is assigned a responsibility to train and uh, install elders in the churches in Crete to set those churches in order and to teach a number of things related to sound doctrine because they have a deep and desperate need for that in the church. And he's to teach all the different age groups in the church. He's to teach the servants that are in the church and he is to do that because there is a, a demand, if you will, caused by the grace of God that has appeared bringing salvation, that saving grace, that teaching grace, and that sacrificing grace that we looked at over the last three times that we spent in verses 11 to 15 of chapter 2. We ended there in verse 15 with this word, speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And then the Apostle Paul carries on with Titus, telling him some additional true and healthy doctrine. I go back to chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. 
And he's going to do some more of that now. He's going to say, not only speak these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority, but I want you to remind people of certain things that are necessary to remember. Titus was to review these things with the new elders and with the churches on the island of Crete. In addition to speaking, he was also to, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I think we'll just get to those verses today. And we'll talk about two things, really. One, the way that Christians were before salvation and the way that the world is without salvation. And then secondly, the Christian's relationship to government and to society the relationship that we have to government and society. Basically, and to government, we could say verse 1, to society, to all men generally, verse 2, and then verse 3 is the explanation, is the kind of backstory for why we should conduct ourselves this way. And really, this follows a pattern that is a favorite of Paul's where he gives the conduct that's necessary and then the reason for that. We saw that in Chapter 2, right? Verses 1 through 10 were, you know, teach them to do these things and why? For the grace of God that brings salvation and that purifies has appeared and has done its work. Here, a similar pattern. Do these things because you were once this way, and of course, we'll get to it in verses 4 through 8, but you have been brought out of that now. Um, sometimes the apostle will give the doctrine and then the practice. Other times, as we've seen here, he gives the practice, and then he gives the doctrine underlying or driving that practice. So both patterns we find in his, in his letters. I kind of debated about what, how to start this message, and I'm still not sure what I should do. So I'll just pick one and go with it. So what I'll do is I'll actually start in verse 3. So I put the notes in order, but... When I did my study, I kept going back and starting at verse 3 and laying that out and then coming back to verses 1 and 2 because 3 is kind of logically prior to 1 and 2, even though it comes afterwards in the order of the text. So if you're following along in the notes, which also are available online, you'll want to start on page 4 where I have Roman numeral 2 with the word why. Remember, we were not Christians in our past. We were not, and I'll use a verse from First Peter eventually here. Maybe actually be in, that uh, is in my conclusion. We're done with that old life. That's the point. We're done with it. We're over it. We're finished. We don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. We can't stand the idea of being apart from God, of being engrossed in sin, of being enslaved to sin we're done. We were that way. We are not that way. Look at verse number three. For we ourselves, there's the word for, which is giving the explanation for verses one and two. You know, behave this way because we were also once. And then it gives a number of descriptors. We once, at one time, it's very clear in the Greek text, at one time we were messed up in our relationship 
to other people, to authority, especially to God, that, that the change did not come to us because you know we were so wise and insightful and clever and, and informed and smart and all that. The change came because God persuaded us that we needed to be changed, to depart from that life which, I mean, anybody should want to depart from the life of being apart from God because Romans 6 and 7 say that it bears fruit unto the sinful lifestyle, bears fruit unto death. It's when you come in Christ that you bear fruit unto life and righteousness. Why would you want to be living something that's going to end in destruction? Matthew chapter 7, the Broadway, the narrow way. Remember the Broadway leads to destruction. Very explicit, very clear. We once were messed up in all these relationships with government, with God, with other people. We were, in fact, the Bible says, foolish. Foolish. You know, how many times have you said, thinking back of your pre-conversion life, like, what a fool. Not everybody else, me. (laughs) What a fool I was. You recognize that. The word can mean in Greek, unintelligent or dim-witted, dull-witted, but in this context, I think foolish is the best translation because there are very worldly, intelligent people who are fools, who are fools, who are foolish. They reject the birthright of heaven for a mess of worldly stew that will end in destruction. They believe that they came from nothing, are going nowhere, and are ultimately accountable to no one. Foolish thoughts, foolish thoughts, completely false. They believe historical facts are pretend, like about Israel, about Jesus, you know, that's pretend. And they believe that pretend is reality. Abortion does not kill a living homo sapiens, they pretend. They think talk through diplomacy will change people, education will fix the world's problems, that life consists of entertainment. Pretend becomes reality, and reality has become pretend. That is what foolishness is. Ultimately, in in, in a way, it is unintelligence because it's believing things that are false. Convincing things, perhaps, things with a lot of accoutrements around them, things which have an appearance of, of, of wisdom, worldly wisdom, but it's all foolishness in the sight of God. We were that way. By God's grace, he has uh, caused us to escape from that. We were also, what does the text say? Not only foolish, but secondly, disobedient. Those who are disobedient simply cannot be persuaded of the right course of action. Uh, You know, you, you try to talk to somebody, you try to reason with them, you try to help them, you tell them what they need to do. This is for believers and unbelievers, friends, and people won't listen. They will not be persuaded. Like things, you know, maybe the course of things in my life has some problems. And, you know, I keep running into brick walls. Okay, suggestion, try this, do this, uh, uh, repent of this sin. But then they don't, and it keeps on going in the same pattern. And there's no wondering why it does that. Disobedience. Now, this starts at home. Uh, in the younger years, listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, perilous times. It says, 
of these perilous times, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Disobedience to par- disobedient to parents. So this disobedience starts at home, and that's why it's so important for us to teach our children to obey their parents in the Lord for what? This is right. This is morally right for you to enforce obedience in your home. You just don't have any idea what you're doing to spare that child from a life of disaster by teaching them to be obedient. It, it seems like kind of a small thing or oh, we can't, we can't you know, dare tell little Johnny no. You know, we, we have to let him develop. No, you don't want him to develop in that way. <laughs> you want him to develop a sense of obedience to authority and to God. Paul says to King Agrippa, I received the vision from heaven that told me on the road to Damascus to go there to uh, you know, I'll gain my sight back and, and be a minister to the Gentiles. And he said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What God told me to do, I did. So what God tells you to do, Do you do? Are you disobedient? Titus 1.16, remember? We were just there a few weeks ago. These ones profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. I found an interesting little verse, though, that might throw people off a little bit. It's uh, in an unlikely spot. It's in Luke chapter 1. And it shows us that the Lord Jesus specializes in a ministry of turning disobedient people into righteous people. Thank God for that. Luke 1 and verse number 17. Speaking of the one that John will be the uh, annunciator for, the, uh, the forerunner, it says in one, Luke one seventeen, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here is God's program to call people to repentance and to call them to change from disobedience to the wisdom of the just. Okay? It's unwise to be disobedient to God. So we were that way. We were foolish, disobedient. Paul says also we were deceived. Deceived. You know the feeling of being deceived? You know the feeling of somebody else deceiving you? And then do you know the feeling of being deceived yourself? Oh, I was so deceived. We were, as all people, led astray, wandering from the truth of God. Each one had gone our own way, right? The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53. One definition gave this. Deceived means to wander about aimlessly. To wander about aimlessly. Here's an example of deception. The idea that humans are basically good and will do what is best. Not only is this foolish thinking, but it's also deceived because it's nowhere close to true, the deception arises due to a couple of possible sources. One is simply wishful thinking. You know, I wish that humans were basically good. Wishing it so doesn't make it so, okay? Uh, or lack of information. 
You know, you just don't know. I, I say sometimes, you know, probably you need to maybe turn on another news source or maybe more pejoratively, I shouldn't say this, but maybe you need to get out a little more. I mean, just kind of have your eyes open to what's going on in the world. You know, go to another country or at least visit in, you know, some way on the video or some documentary or something. Look back at the wars of, of world history. Think about the atrocities happening even now, this very moment in our world, the persecution that is happening, lack of information, wishful thinking, or purposeful ignorance, just closing your eyes to the obvious. There's some kind of thing going on with deception that lets you not understand what is really happening before your very eyes. But not only is this wishful thinking, deceptive or deceived thinking is dangerous thinking to the well-being of large communities of people. Deception ends in destruction. I thought it was going this way, but you were deceived. It actually was going this other way entirely. Deception. We were that way. Also, uh, what is this, number four? Serving lusts and pleasures. Well, actually it says serving various lusts and pleasures. This is the word, various is the word manifold. Manifold. Many different kinds of delights and cravings, unbelievers are enslaved to them. Passions and desires. And notice, these are not just, when it says uh, lusts and pleasures, you might think immediately of sexual sin. But it's more than that. It's sensual, which we often reduce down to sexual as well, because we're, uh, what can we say? hammered with that stuff all the time, but it's more than that. Sensual has to do with the senses, the pleasures, the feelings, the wants, the desires. All kinds of pleasure rules the roost. One example, willingly choosing to be lazy and sit in front of the TV and computer instead of working all day. That's a lust and a pleasure. Millions of able-bodied People are on food stamps. This is an example to me of this notion. That, in other words, laziness is a lust. Don't want to work too hard. Don't want to work at all. Rather have somebody give me free money. That program breeds more of the pleasure mindset. But there are a manifold number of other such things that I'm sure you can imagine if you spend a few minutes thinking about what are all the different lusts and pleasures, the various ways that the world and the flesh and the devil try to uh, entrap us and to get us involved. Check to see in your own self if you are a slave of those pleasures, entertainment, ease, or other pleasures that are in your particular area of interest. Next, the Bible says we were not only serving those lusts and pleasures, but living in malice and envy. Malice, I think, is a callous disregard for the image of God. Hateful, uh, ill will towards people, thinking down on people. I just I couldn't believe it. I saw a snippet of an old video again of a very prominent politician saying that most people are too small-minded to govern themselves or to govern properly. It was a clear case of caste-based thinking. 
or somebody thinks they're the elite and we're the plebeians or the serfs or the whatever, you know, and uh, the sharecroppers or whatever, and we're just nothing. We're just, you know, human rabble. And it was a sad thing. There's malice built into that. It's depraved mean-spiritedness toward others. It's jealousy here of their qualities, things or stations in life. Paul says, notice this, people were spending their lives in malice and envy. That's what it means, living, living in that. That was your life. That is still some people's life today. And you you say, that's not, that couldn't be the case. That just can't be. Listen to the words, my friends. Listen to the Marxists today who are saying these kinds of things. Just listen. Look at their websites that say what we believe, just like a church has a what we believe page. So do these people, what we believe. And you'll be shocked at the things that you, oh, that couldn't be true. No, you're naive if you think that. There are really people who believe those things and want to change your life. People who think that you you own your property, you can't own property. You'll own nothing, and you'll be happy with it because they think you can't manage your things properly. They have malice, perhaps envy as well. Then the Bible says, Paul here telling Titus, people before salvation were hateful and hating one another. I think this is a two-directional hate. What this says is that people were being hated and hating others. Hateful and hating one another. It's, maybe it's not the greatest translation here. Hated, the ESV has it, hated by others and hating one another. It's a good translation. You know, I, did, I never thought of this verse until I was studying this, but I've been saying for months, probably for a, at least a year and a half or two years, that our society is filled with hatred. Hatred of one group to another, one person to another, one class to another. I mean, it, goes, it, it certainly goes way farther back. I mean, remember that whole thing with the, what was that called? Uh, it was the 99% and the 1%. Uh, it was that movement. I can't think of the name of it. Yeah, but it was something else. It was a, it was a protest against that. And just the name has escaped me for the moment. But the Occupy Wall Street movement. Thank you for that, brother. That's exactly what I was looking for. Hatred. Hatred toward others for what they have. Now, it's not that all the, the hatred was unfounded, like in the sense that, you know, hatred is only directed to people that are totally righteous. Obviously not. Nobody's righteous. Everybody's greedy. You know, either they have it and they want more, or they don't have it and they want more. I mean... Right? It's, it's, it's human nature. And we, we hate. We hate one another. The society is full of this hatred. Don't be a hater, you know, as they say. But that's what it, the world is like. Don't be surprised. Notice it says, and that's the last quality, but it says, at one time, we were all marked by these characteristics. Not a one of us, no matter how young we were when we were saved, can say, I'm innocent. You know, like when the Lord asked the, uh, remember when he asked the rich young ruler, you know, have you kept the commandments? He gave him the list. The guy said, yeah, absolutely, you know. No problem. I've kept all those from my youth. Yeah, right. 
none of us can raise our hand and say, hey, uh, these, I don't know anything about these. No, we know something about them. Of course, this isn't an exhaustive list of sins, but it certainly is fairly comprehensive in all the different categories. Uh, you know, no matter how benign we think we were or are, we're disobedient and deceived and foolish, serving various lusts and pleasures. Check it out. Is there anyone who can honestly say, I'm guilty of none of that? And if you say that, then I would ask, are you guilty of being proud? Check your humility. Gloriously and by God's grace, we're not like these things now if we're in Christ. And that is the reason why we cannot live that way anymore. We've been transformed by the kindness and love of Christ and the work of the Spirit and the Father. The rest of the chapter tells us that, starting in verse 4 through 8. And we're reminded, thus, to live godly. We were once that way. But now, if we go back to the beginning of the notes, we see the Christian's relationship to government and society. And Paul says, look, you came out of that. So, Titus, you've got to remind them of certain things. Don't just tell them how bad they were. That's true. But tell them what they should be. Tell us, Christians, what, how we should look. What should my life look like? Or remind me. And this idea of reminding you find it in, uh, in John chapter 14, the spirit of uh, truth will come and he will bring to your memory all things that I have commanded to you. He's talking to the disciples, saying that everything he's taught them, they're going to pour that out of themselves as they write the New Testament. And we have that for us now in the pages that are before us in our Bibles. Uh, Jude uh, verse 5, he wants to remind us of truths that we once received. Second Peter chapter 1, the same. To remind means to put something into the mind of another person, although it was there before. So it's to re-mind, mind you. Now I'm reminding you of this. So Paul doesn't tell Titus here to tell them or to inform them of these things as if there's some new information. Either the, 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 the people in Crete and the churches were already instructed in the basics of the faith, likely, if Paul and Titus were there moving about the country and Paul left him there to finish and do the rest of the work. Or it's the case, I think, that they also were taught internally by God's Spirit and they knew intuitively what God requires. What I mean by that is this. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 9, you can look it up afterwards sometime. The Bible says, for you are taught by God to love one another. You inherently know that you ought to love each other. When you have faith in Christ, there's such a majestic transformation of the life of a person. They turn from a hater into a lover. They turn from a person deceived and foolish into a person who is, knows the truth and is wise in a, in a general way. You can see it. I mean, the person goes from like lights out to lights on. And you see that especially in adults when they come to faith and they realize the, the new life that they have. They've been taught by God. You could sit them down two minutes after they're saved and say, remind, I just want to remind you, you need to be obedient and ready for every good work and not speak evil of people. And they'll be like, I, I kind of knew that. I knew that already. 
because the Spirit of God was in them teaching them. You have received, 1 John says, the anointing from the Holy One. You know all things. That is not you know everything, but you know concerning all things. You've been brought into a relationship with God's knowledge where you have a certainty and are embracing divine truth, even if you don't know all the details. John, in fact, John chapter 6, 44 says, No man can come to the Father unless what? And, and to the Son unless what? The Father draws him. And then it says in that next verse in John 6, 45, which is probably less well known, but it touches on this very thought that we're dealing with. Notice what it says. It says this, John 6, 45, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So at the very inception or beginning of salvation, the Father, God the Father, has worked a work in the life of the believer in order to draw them to Jesus Christ, and they are thus taught by God. They know Christ. They, become, they come to know Him. Paul is, or not Paul, Jesus there is using uh, in that quote Isaiah 54. It's in a new covenant context. And I alluded to that earlier today when I talked about the earth being filled with the knowledge of God. God will teach all. Now, we have some of that blessing today, but it's not at all universal. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's of a different sort of thing, uh, although many people today say, yeah, we're fully in the new covenant. I don't think that's the case. We have new covenant-like blessings, but listen, God said, I will, in that day I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He hasn't done that yet. They haven't ratified that covenant in the sense of, you know, given their hearty agreement to it. But when they do, boy, it's going to be a different scenario out there. But we will be taught, the world will be taught by God, and that new covenant will come to full flower in the messianic kingdom. We just have kind of little beginnings of those things in this age. I already mentioned 1 John 2, so I'll move on from there. And just mention this, as we think about Titus, when, he, when Paul tells him to remind the people, Remember this, putting things into your brain is a dangerous business. Often those things never come out. Traumatic or big things are etched into your memory and stuck in your synapses in profound ways. Things that you see, events that you've experienced, Traumatic things. I mean, many of us will remember these days of the news that we've been seeing of the horrific events in Afghanistan. They will be etched onto our memories. You remember significant events in history from JFK's assassination to 9-11 and all the different things that you remember, other traumas in your family. You have images in your mind. You can't get them out. You have sinful things in there you can't get out. Some people have said, you remember every face that you've ever seen. You just don't remember it, but you do remember it. So you have dreams with many people in them, and all those faces you may have seen before. Otherwise, you're manufacturing faces, I guess. I don't know how that works, but your brain is a marvelous device. But it's very dangerous to put the wrong things into your brain. Educators are putting things into our kids' brains that will affect them for years to come. The culture with its immorality today and especially lately its fear-mongering is warping the minds of our children 
by trying to put garbage into them. But Christian reminders are desperately needed, so let me put a few things in your mind that will be helpful things in the few moments that we have remaining. The Bible says, remind them to be what? Subject to rulers and authorities. Now, you're already probably thinking of civil disobedience because you have an anti-authoritarian bent just like every other human being does. And you say, boy, I don't like paying taxes. I certainly don't like the mandates and the lockdowns and the this and the that and everything else. Inherent in human nature is an anti-authority bent. At some point in history, it squirts out and becomes more visible and active. At other times, it's always beneath the surface. But in order to make a workable society, you know what you have to do? You have to subject that tendency of human nature to chaos and anarchy. You have to subject that so that you can have a workable civil society. How do you do that? Well, there are two basic ways. You have a people who has taught some level of morality out of the Christian faith, I might add, that know how to subject themselves so that we the people under a system of law have a a way of living together in a peaceable manner. Or, if you don't have that, you have raw fear and power applied to a people by a dictator or by a system of government that forces them into conformity and punishes if they do evil. Those are really the only two kinds of systems. Our system has been workable for a while, but if we have an immoral people, it will fall to pieces. Most of the world's history has been filled with dictators who have ruled with that kind of power and relying on the very limited constraints that are sometimes present in the human nature, that there's some knowledge of right and wrong there. Thankfully, not all are as depraved as they can be, but we have this issue with being subject because human nature doesn't want to be. You know, anti-authoritarianism is popular. Even rejecting God's creative authority over your personal identity, people are doing today. This can only lead to chaos and destruction. Christians have the most powerful internal moral work of the Spirit of God that teaches them to submit to authority. Parents, teachers, governors, emperors, etc., even evil ones. This disposition is what we call submissiveness. But then there is that doing of the disposition that is sometimes difficult. We might have the uh, feeling, the the, uh, disposition toward being subject, but then we have to do it, and that's what the next word is about. I'll just uh, mention by way of application, if you're a member of a church online, you're listening or you're a uh, part of a church or you're in our church, uh, if, some, if, if your pastor or one of the pastors has made an honorable, holy request of you and, or given you guidance about something, you're under divine obligation to that. I personally experience people you know, hear what I'm saying but not, do not attend to it in an honorable way. They blow it off, they forget it, they ignore it, they think they have a better approach. Just know that that shows disrespect for those authorities that have been placed in your spiritual life. Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. You have to take good, careful note of those things. Again, I say honorable, lawful, biblical instruction. You must give every effort to follow that. 
to obey authority then is what comes after the disposition. Uh, Paul, here's an example of it. Paul told the people on the boat, remember when they were being cast in the, in the Mediterranean Sea for days and days on end and didn't see the sun or stars or the moon or anything and it was a terrible storm? He said, you people should have listened to me when I told you not to go out from the harbor. You should have obeyed is what the word is that he used. Uh, and really, it's a compound word that means to obey those that are in charge. Obey the leaders. Romans 13 is the classic passage about this. right? Obey those authorities that are over you. They do not bear the sword in vain. Okay? Yeah. If you uh, are required to pay taxes, for example, then pay them. If you're told to follow other laws, follow them. But never if it means disobeying God. Okay? This is for us obvious. That is where the matter of civil disobedience comes in. And I'll give you a couple of verses in Acts chapter 5 about that, where the apostles said to the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they said, look, you, you figure it out. Is it better for us to obey God or men? Because your commands are running in direct opposition to what God commands us. So we can't do both. It's not possible. We cannot have two bosses who are telling us contrary things. We have to have one boss in this area of our faith. And so uh, modern examples are, are becoming more and more uh, prevalent, I guess I would say. Well, you, obviously, this last year, people have had trouble with the whole church attendance uh, matter. You know, some states totally tried to lock down. Canada, terrible example. The states down in South America, same thing, or the countries. Uh, no religious protections whatsoever. It's just all health, 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 fear, 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 cases, 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 and all of that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, so are you going to attend church even if you're told not to? Even if you're recommended not to? We had to make that, you know, that decision. Thankfully, in Michigan, it wasn't as hard as it was in, say, California for them with the more harsh lockdowns there. We had to decide, and, and we decided. I mentioned earlier today about uh, conversion therapy for uh, LGBTQ people being uh, youngsters, I should say, to be more accurate, outlawed in Ann Arbor now, uh, penalty for that. Um, we have to decide, are we going to kowtow to that, or are we going to just keep on doing business as usual? Well, we're going to just keep on doing business as usual. You know, if somebody comes and says, help me out with this problem, I'm going to preach the gospel. And that's it. There's no question about that. You know, somebody can't step into, the, into this realm and act as if they're the authority here. That's not correct. It's immoral. It's wrong. For many reasons. We won't go into it all now, but... We do have the mindset to obey authority, and we do every time we can. But when we can't, we can't. Now, also, Paul says, not only to be subject and to obey, but to be ready for every good work. Now, I'm not going to go into the Greek on this and tell you all the meanings of the words. You know why? Because it means to be ready for every good work. That's it. It's self-explanatory. Are you ready for every good work? Are you prepared? That's what it means. 
and able to do good deeds to your fellow believers and neighbors? Are you not only prepared physically, financially, but also mentally with the desire and the outlook, actually awaiting opportunities for good works, looking for opportunities for good works, and seizing on those opportunities? You see something that's needed to be done? Do it. It's a good work, and that's the idea of being prepared and ready for every good work. Or are you so wrapped up in yourself and wasting your stewardship that you don't have an abundance for every good work? Paul prays for the Corinthians. You know, some of these people out of their poverty gave to support the poor saints in Jerusalem in that large offering project that they had. And, and Paul said, I pray that God will give you an abundance for every good work, that he will return to you that which you have given so that you will be ready to do another good work. Now, we don't have time to look at this middle of page three here, but the, the whole idea of every good work is found in a half a dozen or more passages in Scripture, and I'll give you that as a homework to look those up. They were interesting reads. Paul says to Titus, speak evil of no one. That's blasphemy or slander or maligning. Have you ever bad-mouthed another person? Watch this. It's so easy to do. Bad-mouthing another person, slandering another person, your pastor, your husband to your girlfriends, your wife to your guy friends, your spouse to your kids, another church member. Speak evil of no one. That might mean we have to button it a little bit more often than we have in the past and be careful. Also, we're peaceable. Now we're in uh, verse number 2. We're peaceable. We're not a fighter. We're peace-loving people, but we will fight if necessary, only if necessary. But we should not be found to be quarrelsome people at all. Instead, gentle, yielding, kind, courteous kinds of people. And finally, humble people. An attitude of low mind. That illustration earlier of the elites looking down, the caste kind of system, that is not how we think. I mean, somebody says, uh, you know, to, to us, you are a white supremacist, or you are a racist, or you are a... We have been taught by God not to even think in those categories. Like, that is so foreign to how we think. We don't see people in those categories. I mean... Of course people are in categories. I mean, they're darker-skinned or lighter-skinned, or they have a different culture or a different accent or a different dialect or a different diet, or they live in a different place or whatever. But of the human family, we're all one human family, clearly the case. That's, look, at, uh, you know, look at the DNA. You know, spend a little time studying on that stuff, and you'll see exactly what I mean. <clears throat> we do, but we don't think in those categories like, we don't look at people and say, well, I'm better than them. No, in fact, the Christian's mindset is we look at people and we, almost exactly the reverse. They're better than me. Look at how God has blessed them and, and transformed them and, or whatever, and, and we're like, Boy, I wish I could, almost wish I could be like that some, you know? More mature, more... Uh, more calm or more patient or more loving or more whatever. And we look at people in a whole different category, system, than we do the world, which trying to talk to us about how, you know, we know in your heart that you look down on these people. 
you don't have any clue how it is in my heart. Forget your psychoanalysis. You don't even know. How can a man know what is in the heart of another man except that man tell him what is in his heart? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So it is with the Spirit of God. You can't know the things of God unless he tells you. Thankfully, he's told us. But we think in totally different categories than this. Humble, a low mind toward people. We're not high-minded. Whether we're, we're interacting with somebody who's rich or poor or high or low or big or small, it's courtesy, it's gentleness. All this, all this goes together. Just read that list again. We're ready to obey, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one. We're peaceable, gentle. We show all humility to all men. Christianity does not allow for us to be harsh, slanderers, people who pick fights, always contradicting and are proud of our own supposed knowledge and achievements. That's just, there's no space for that in the faith. On the conclusion on page six, I've given you a side-by-side chart that compares the two lists of categories, or not categories, but characteristics rather. And I share that with you just to show you how different we were before and after salvation. And finally, I will go to that First Peter chapter 4, and the first few verses of that chapter, which say these words as we conclude. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You see that same transition that occurs? You leave sin behind, you live for the will of God, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. It's enough. We walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. It's over. Our life is different now. We've left that behind. We spent way too much time in that lifestyle and we're done with it because we are now a new creation in Christ. We'll see next week just how that happens. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and for the word of God. Thank you for this message from Titus, the third chapter. And God, may you burn these things into our minds. Remind us of them. We know them. Lord, they're not new. We know we should be humble and obedient and courteous and gentle and kind and just merciful, and all these things that we've touched on in various ways this morning. And so I pray for your help that we would be marked by those character traits. In Jesus' name, amen.